Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you're well. This week on the show, we're going to talk about data visualization research, and we're going to talk a little bit about how to communicate uncertainty through visualization and to help me with these various tasks. I'm very pleased to introduce Steve Harroz, who is a postdoc researcher at the Sorbonne University in France. Steve, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Really good to chat with you because I think we've only chatted in person once, maybe. Yeah, that sounds, that right? that sounds about right. Except we chat all the time on Twitter, um, but it's always fun to like meet the Twitter friends in real life and have an actual <laughs> conversation. Yes, exactly. Hi, we've spoken many, many yeah. times, but we've never met. How are you? Right. Yes. Right. I tell lots of people that what I really want to do is have a roll of parchment and a quill <laughs> and just bring that along with me. And anytime I meet someone from Twitter, I'm just going to scratch it out and just, you know... <laughs> So I want to talk about some of the research you do and the, and the methods behind some of that research. And I also want to talk about communicating uncertainty because I know you have some thoughts and, and feelings on how to do so. So why don't we start by having you talk a little bit about yourself and maybe just jump into some of the research that you're doing. Sure. So my research focuses on how our brain perceives and understands visual information and how it sort of takes that information and uses it to perform some sort of action or make some sort of decision or recall some information later on. And it looks at the perceptual aspects, the memory aspects, the selection of a subset from your visual information, as well as sort of cognitive uh, uh, processing and computation of that uh, visual information. So yeah, a lot of that as a consequence tends to focus on data visualization, prime example of visual information. And an interesting aspect there is that data visualization for me is that is more kind of a an arbitrary medium. I'm often uh, called a data visualization researcher. I consider myself a data visualization researcher, but at the end of the day, the data is for me is sort of a a means to an end to understand what the brain, what our visual system is doing, and how can we take advantage of that as best as possible. So when you are thinking about conducting research to explain how we perceive information. What are some of the core techniques that you like to think about? I'm not sure a lot of people think carefully about visualization research. So this might be a good primer for people. Like what are some of the primary techniques that you might use to to run some of these tests? Sure. Um, A lot of what I try to look at is trying to understand what happens often in fairly sort of small timeframes. And then what are these sort of sequences of very small behavioral, cognitive processes that our brain is doing in order to form some more sort of complex decision, in order to be able to select some information or recall some information or understand information. And in order to do that, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll present some information very quickly. Imagine if you're sort of reading through a paragraph of text and you see sort of a figure in the corner of your eye, and you take a quick glance at that figure and then you come back to the text. what information can you grasp? What did you? What do you miss? Uh, what is the kind of things where you're going to have to really carefully inspect the scene, otherwise you won't catch anything? And to do that, usually what we'll do is we'll either just very briefly present something on the screen and ask, what did you see or what did you not see? Or uh, we will show something on the screen, either sometimes very vaguely or sometimes very precisely, what it is that you have to do and see how long it takes people to accomplish something. And usually what we focus on, because we're trying to understand how and why, not what is the best improvement of this specific application, because we're trying to look at the how and why question, 
will very carefully and precisely sort of manipulate the display, which may look nothing like a sort of realistic data visualization or even a natural scene that you might see in the world. But it lets us sort of pull apart, hey, when we add this little thing, we get this big change in behavior. When we add this other thing, we get no change in behavior. And uh, or we can measure the behavior in terms of accuracy, in terms of how quickly people respond. Um, usually we, I try to stick to more sort of objective measures like that, sort of the, the time and accuracy questions. But, you know, you can also look at it for um, sort of more qualitative questions like uh, it could be preference. It could be, um, you know, which thing does a person select even when there is no right answer? So trying mm-hmm. to see sort of how we can change behavior often with very seemingly subtle or very sort of small changes to a display um, is the goal. Right. So can you give us an example of some of the research that you've done? Um, I know you you have an interesting paper on isotypes. You have a paper that I really liked on connected scatter plots. Sure. But can you talk about one of those or, or any others that you're working on that um, implements these the, the sorts of techniques you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the isotype one was sort of an interesting case because um, it started with uh, seeing some examples, some isotypes being discussed on blogs, on Robert Kassar's blog and others, and in various data visualization research, uh, as well as some sort of uh, negative discussions of isotype in the context of yeah. you know the quote-unquote chart junk uh, debate, right? Where the idea is that any sort of superfluous aspect that is not the most minimal representation of the data that you have is going to be bad. Now, some of the original authors may or may not have intended it to be so strict when when discussing chart junk, but oftentimes it's interpreted that way. So what I sort of wanted to know is, okay, well, first of all, how much of this is true, right? Is Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? What are people doing when they're looking at these? And what started the project was we saw myself and Steve Frankenary and Robert Kassara uh, saw an example of someone presenting uh, some isotypes. And the first thing that came to mind was that some of these uh, isotypes, which for those who don't know, these are these sort of little stacks of images. So if you can imagine a bar chart, instead of sort of a a long uh, bar to represent some value, you would have just a stack of little things, which could be, you know, car production. And so you'd have a car representing millions of, of cars produced by a company or uh, or by a country or versus, I don't know, a, a plane production. You can have you know, maybe a smaller stack of planes because fewer planes are produced. And what I noticed is that sometimes there were very few of these sort of icons in a graph and other times there were these huge stacks of them. And what I was wondering was, I wonder if there's a a cognitive or attentional limit to how quickly and readily you can get a grasp of, of how many of these icons are in the, in the display. Um, and, yeah. and this is sort of based on some past research, some of it my own, much of it based on many, many, many other people who have shown that if you want to very quickly count something, there's four or fewer things. You can just get that quantity very, very quickly. And as you start going higher, your accuracy starts degrading gradually as a function of the quantity uh, until you're, they, they go from what they call sort of this very precise and accurate counting called subitizing to a much less sort of est- much less precise estimate, you know, generally called sort of numerosity estimation. And so it shifts from this exact precise immediate understanding of the quantity to an estimate. Does that uh, show itself in terms of the isotypes, in terms of these little icons? 
And also, again, going back to it, well, people are using images uh, in a graph. Is that helpful? Is that harmful? Um, and in what ways? What is it that, uh, that people are potentially benefiting from using the image? And what is it that maybe the image might be hurting people? And like is true with mm -hmm. the quantity. So what we do is we sort of present uh, uh, some simple graphs on the screen for, you know, about a second or so. And then we take it away and then we ask, you know, how many, maybe it was, uh, you know, numbers of, you know, how many fruit was produced. And we ask, you know, how many apples were produced and how many bananas were produced. Uh, and we'd see, you know, how well after a very brief display and then immediately right afterwards asking them, you know, what you saw, could we, you know, sort of measure some of these effects? And in one case, we, we measured it, you know, like I said, just very instantly on the screen for a second off and immediately asking the question. And in that case, what we found was that with about four or fewer items, five or fewer items, you do pretty well. You're pretty accurate, even with this one second display, which is comparable to, you know, reading some text and then getting a glance at a figure. And then if you go back to the text, how well are you remembering the figure? Um, or likewise, just maybe seeing, uh, you know, a brief uh, uh, display of a graph in your periphery. You take a look for a second, you don't think about it. And then, you know, what are you, what are you getting out of that? The other side of it was what happens over a longer period of time. So in a short period of time, okay, the small numbers uh, sort of improves performance, which suggests that there is this uh, sort of capacity limit, some sort of resource limit that's, that's preventing you from being precise with larger numbers. Uh, but with longer term, what we found was something different. We found the, the number of items, the size of the stack didn't matter so much. And what instead mattered was that when you have these images, these, these icons in the figure, as opposed to we replaced it with just a simple shape, like a circle. When you had these icons, you were able to remember it sometimes 10, we check, you know, several seconds later rather than right afterwards. And your performance improved substantially. So those, those icons were helping you sort of helping your memory have something to sort of hook onto some, something, whether it's the, the number of fruit, the number of uh, pets, the number of objects that were manufactured. And it just helped you help your memory hold on. Um, what's interesting was that in, in both of those cases, we didn't find any sort of necessary harm in having the images there. We didn't see that it hurt anything. And the same was true when we compared the stacks of images with a bar graph, you know, this simple bar, the stack versus the bar, stack never hurt. Uh, however, if you started doing things like what some people will do in a data visualization, which is put background images or add images on the side, in those cases, we found just across the board, huge hits in performance, which suggests that basically they're just distracting, uh, which is kind of straightforward. What the research seems to suggest is that icons or iconography that is rooted to the content helps our memory, but uh, diagrams or, or icons that are not necessarily rooted to the content um, in a in, in that sort of specific explicit way, that really that's more distracting. So a background you might have a graph on agriculture and having a picture of a, of a cow in the background doesn't help you or may actually hurt. but having the icons of cows be the data that actually helped because it's uh, tied explicitly exactly. to the content. And we don't necessarily know yeah. if if that's because there are uh, that, that something about it being part of the data is critical or that it you know maybe directs your attention in a certain way. Um, that could also be an explanation. Mm -hmm. But either way, it seems to be that, as you said, when the 
when the the data and the imagery are sort of in the same place uh, rather than than uh, pulling attention away from each other. Um, in that case, it, it, there does seem to be a very big benefit. Yeah, it'll be interesting whether we see um, lots of graphs with uh, with cows and cars in the next few uh, next few weeks <laughs> and months. So that research, the isotype research, in some ways, those are sort of simple graphs because you can use icons in, in these sort of simple places. It's really sort of counting or the length of the, the, the little people standing next to each other. You also have this paper with, I think, uh, Steve and, and Robert as well on connected scatter plots, which is an even sort of more complicated graph type. Um, I wanted to also get your thoughts on what it takes to convey uncertainty. Um, you know, the, the isotype paper, as an example, those are fairly, I would hypothesize, fairly mm-hmm. simple graphs. Absolutely. Um, what is your take on how we as people who are trying to communicate data can do a better job communicating uncertainty, either uncertainty behind the, you know, just the, just using the data in general, that there's uncertainty on whether these numbers, these estimates mean anything at all, uh, or uncertainty around the point estimate, that there's, there's some distribution around the estimate that we're showing. Yeah, I, I think uh, a, a difficult part of that question is understanding how well people comprehend the notion of a distribution, right? Do people understand yeah. that uh, you could say that in general, cats are smaller than dogs, and that if someone happens to report finding a very small dog and a very large cat, that doesn't change the original statement's truth, that in general, one is larger than the other. So uh, when we look at news and, and politics and finance and, and social policy, that in general, there seems to be this sort of very common mistake made where, where uh, people sort of prioritize an, an anecdote, prioritize you know, a single data point. And, and fail to sort of consider the distribution or the whole data in general. So that's sort of one part of this sort of question of, you know, if we're going to represent, if we're going to convey uncertainty, is the person who's, who it's being conveyed to, you know, capable of understanding it? Or is it, is it being conveyed in a way that they would understand? Uh, so so that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of one part of the question. The other part of the question is, how does uh, our, our visual system and our perceptual system perceive and understand uh, uncertain information. We certainly, it's actually would be very weird and unusual if we were in some sort of visual environment where there were just one single item that we were looking at. That's actually probably fairly unusual. We're usually looking at, you know, whether it's you know, trees or people in a room or cars or, you know, you're, you know, imagine crossing the street and there's people all over the place, there's cars all over the place, you're selecting some of it, you're ignoring other parts of it. You know, the, the visual environment is big and complex and uh, as a consequence, we sort of are going to have to, our, our brain must be finding some way to simplify and represent the information and as, you know, maybe it's a distribution, but some sort of uncertain representation. So the brain must have some way of doing it. It's not clear if uh, people in general uh, understand it in a way that they can speak it and, and hear about it um, via sort of verbal or written communication. Um, so there's this sort of bit of a, a sort of chasm there because also at the same time, you know, the data that people want to present is usually going to be uncertain. If you're visualizing something, it's very rare that you have, you know, one or two data points or these sort of simple graphs that I was talking about with the isotype where it's just you know, two or three bars in a bar graph and that's it. So as far as what the best way to do it is, right now the answer is kind of unclear. 
you know, do you present all of it? Do you just show all of the data, um, you know, maybe as a histogram, maybe as every single data point? Do you represent it as a distribution uh, in terms of, you know, maybe confidence intervals and a mean? Uh, in my experience, very much unfortunately, presenting confidence intervals is not necessarily that successful. Let me ask you, why do you think that is? Is that a lack of statistical literacy or is it we being people, um, we just want to have an answer, right? Like the, the unemployment rate is 4%, right? Or, you know, or whatever. The, we just want it to be like the answer. And even if we understand statistics, maybe the best example for, for lots of people is um, election polling. There's always a margin of error around it. And most people sort of ignore it, even though it's really important. So do you think it's a statistical numeracy issue or it's a, I don't know, a trying to just sift through uh, the weeds of everything and, and just want like... Yeah, a it's a question of whether statistical training maybe earlier on or maybe uh, more sort of integrated mm. as part of a curriculum or maybe sort of replacing potential, you know, other facets of a, you know, middle school, high school education with, with statistics. It's a question of can those things uh, allow us to sort of overcome our various biases? Our biases, I want an answer. Right. And if it's uh, yeah. 50.1% plus or minus 10%, okay, that's good. That one wins. In order to sort of be able to understand any sort of statistical information, let's just call it understand a distribution, uh, in order to get that, at the very least, there must be some degree of statistical training as far as the best way to sort of get that statistical training across and allow people to overcome their biases. I don't know, but we have the end goal and we have sort of the current situation, which is they don't, myself included. I mean, when you see a poll, as you exactly said, when you see a poll that's, you know, 1% difference with a pretty big margin of error, you start feeling confident. Or yeah. if that's if the person that you want to win is ahead or if the person that you want to lose is behind, you start freaking out. So the end goal there is definitely to overcome your own bias. I think we, we, we kind of agree there. You overcome the sort of jump to conclusion um, and also to right. uh, have people who are aware that when they might be making a statistical fallacy, right? If uh, if you look at a single data point and you ignore the entire distribution because of that one data point, that's a fallacy that you're making. That's a that's a mistake. Can people become right. aware of themselves doing that? Can people avoid doing that? What are the ways that you can go about it? I think you know integrating statistics into you know earlier education and maybe you know, potentially replacing other facets of education. Maybe it's higher level math that you can replace with statistics, or maybe it's taking something like um, reading and writing in an early age and having people describe uncertain things rather than things that might have a clear conclusion. That might help. I, I don't want to sort of jump to say the answer, but I think it's definitely worth, you know, having folks in education research, having folks in um, statistical research, you know, sort of look into those questions of, what is it that prevents statistical biases in adults uh, or what reduces them? It's interesting in, in, in lots of ways, but um, 
One story I like to tell people is when I went to graduate school for for economics is I, I didn't really learn how to be an economist, right? You, you learn all the theory and all the math and, and all that stuff. But you, at least when I was going to school, they didn't teach you how to code. They didn't really teach you how to write, certainly not about data visualization or anything that, that we're talking about. Um, but what it does is it sort of attaches to your DNA of how to think like an economist. And I wonder if what needs to happen in some ways is to teach people, is to get people just to think in, in this sort of statistically minded way where we get away from our from our biases, where we see that poll number of the approval rate is 52% or whatever it is, but there's a, there's a, a, a big margin of error where we just come at the world with this different lens, this different view of being a little more skeptical of the data that we're... That's it, being it's funny, I, I found sort of the same thing uh, amongst folks who studied vision science in uh, in school is that even if, you know, sort of in early levels, you might, you're early, maybe undergraduate, you might discuss a lot of, you know, experiment design and statistics, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some process that you develop over time of going through experiments and being able to just spot the confound before it happens uh, to be able to detect, hey, wait a minute, you know what, even though I'm measuring something very precisely, I'm measuring the wrong thing, or I'm, I'm not uh, factoring something out. That, that comes with it, with sort of experience. And I think sort of what you're asking there is sort of this, this ability to think in a way that's both very logical, but also sort of aware of the various missteps that you're about to make, right? That, that sort of that cautiousness that you should right. have. And it's sort of a weird combination of both education and experience. If you maybe hmm. potentially get, I don't want to say necessarily the wrong education, but maybe a different education, you know, for example, people who might have, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, people who have done years of math, they've done all kinds of calculus and differential equations and, and all of these sorts of things. And, uh, and they are just as likely to make a statistical fallacy as someone with, you know, barely a high school education. Your point about the straightforward education not being enough that the experience maybe is is sort of a critical step. Um, I don't know how to characterize that experience except screwing up a lot. Quite frankly, just making all the mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, one thing that I know, at least when it comes to data visualization, is a place like the New York Times where they publish, for example, scatter plots quite regularly. And that's a fairly recent phenomenon. And I think part of the reason they are confident in doing so is their annotation is just really good. And it explains how they, they explain how to read the graph, but they've also been doing it now for at least a little bit of time. So they're sort of educating their readers so that, you know, their regular readers are now accustomed to that graph type. And I wonder if there's room to do something similar with educating our readers on how to think about uncertainty when they're looking at graphs specifically. Although I think this conversation is a little bit broader than just data visualizations about all consumption of, of data and, and, and numbers. Um, but at least with data visualization, whether it's oh, you know, I, I see these graphs with confidence intervals. And if I see enough of them, I at least get the sense of what they mean. Maybe not in a, in a deep statistical mathematical sense, but I get a, an idea that there is a, a bound. There, it's not just one number. There's a bound to, to the number that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that at least in terms of learning other things, including learning how to read data visualizations, people do tend to uh, take on certain routines, certain established practices. For example, if you're looking at a political map and you see blue and red, you immediately know that that means uh, Democrat and Republican. 
that's fairly new. I think like as recently as like 2000, give or take. And that's, uh, yeah. And it's totally arbitrary, right? Both parties are arguably the red, white, and blue party. So yeah, why, so, why did yeah. the colors become associated that way? Well, it was an arbitrary decision. People had an established practice and it's stuck. I kind of wonder if there, if there are, you know, sort of, uh, some straightforward tricks, and likely there are that people use with statistical graphics that whenever you see this, you should always think that. One example is, you know, maybe if you ever see a graph of anything involving finance or uh, economics or, or social policy, if you ever see a graph like that without error bars, immediately be skeptical. Another one that I have is whenever I hear a politician use the word millions of dollars, federal government politician use millions of dollars. Right, you're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So, uh, you know, there might be a way to train people with certain, you know, very sort of simple rules of thumb. Yeah. If you don't see this, or if you hear this but not that, then be skeptical. Look in a little deeper. Um, on the other hand, if you have everything you need, uh, if they're presenting everything to you, but not everything maybe matches. There was an example where. Uh, in the recent election where there were graphs being sent around of, I forget if it was primary results or polling results or something, where one candidate's uh, you know bar was some certain proportion higher than the other candidate, but the the numbers on the label were were completely misleading. You know, it was uh, you know had a bar that was twice as big as the other, but in actuality they were off by like one percent or something. And it, it hasn't just happened in this election; it's happened plenty of times before. Is there a way to sort of train people to say, hey, if, you know, make sure all the information mm -hmm. matches, right? Or make sure that you have more than one data point being shown. There might be a way to sort of, um, maybe it's through, you know, in journalism and, or maybe it's, you know, in other ways to always say that, you know, what if, you know, every time a journalist said uh, this versus this, they always said, and here's the distribution. I don't know. I don't know if confidence intervals are the perfect answer, but maybe showing yeah, a bunch of right. sample data points, uh, anything along those lines of just, what if it always was there? What if we just didn't have these sort of very simple, just showing the mean graphs or just, uh, just showing like, you know, you know, a single value, getting people to understand the difference between the median and the mean, I think would be, yeah. you know, sort of a huge step forward and, and would fix a lot of problem, a lot of sort of confusion that, that can happen sometimes when reading these graphs. And that's something that I think would be a little easier if the distribution is clear. You can see a skew, you know, looking at a histogram, whereas if you just get the mean, it's hard to know what's going on underneath there. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's a bunch of people out there thinking, no, but that's going to be chart clutter and it's going to be hard. We're going to see all this extra stuff. But maybe it's it's worth that trade off. Um, there is actually a really good post that Lisa Charlotte wrote recently on the mean versus median. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And I think that maybe you're right. Maybe that's the first step is just these very simple things of means and medians and, and let's, you know, get people to understand what a percentile is. And that's just the, you know, that's the first step. And maybe that's, you know, maybe for 95% of what we're showing people or that we're seeing, that's enough. And, you know, then there's sort of the 1% of the things that we produce take yeah, up absolutely. You know, most of the effort. But for the most part, maybe we just need these simple, these simple statistical concepts um, to relate. So, well, we'll see. It's a fun discussion and I'm sure we'll continue going on and on. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing what research you come out with uh, this year. I think people should certainly check out the isotype paper and the connected scatter plot papers. Both great. I'm looking forward to seeing what you uh, come up with 2018. Thanks for coming on the show, Steve. It's been great. Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Uh, great chatting with you.
Yeah. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. If you have thoughts on how to communicate uncertainty, uh, please do let me know. This is an ongoing discussion, obviously, in one of the more I wouldn't say contentious, but difficult areas of data visualization is how to get people to understand uncertainty and distributions. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.